Hi, everyone. It's uh, lovely to see you, especially the new faces uh, that are with us this morning. You're so welcome. And, and for the sake of you this morning, I want to quickly just recap over what we've been looking at so far as a church uh, family together. So from the beginning of September, we have been increasingly sensing as a body of believers that we are to posture ourselves for a continued advancement in the kingdom, that we are to take this forward-leaning posture as a church whose deepest longing it is to see the kingdom breaking through into the reality around us because, because we just love Jesus, you know, and that, that's just really why we do all of this. And to make sure that we do this in a biblical way, we have been really digging into everything that Jesus has taught on the kingdom of God. And so far, we have established that, that Jesus was the one who came to inaugurate the kingdom. And what that really means is that he, came, he was the one who came to kind of release it and to bring it among us. And in doing that, he taught that it was coming um, and that it was moving among us in the person of Jesus. So we came to establish the kingdom by dealing with every kind of sin, every kind of sickness and darkness through the work of the cross and to make sure that his followers then understood the different ways and the nuances of the kingdom. And you see, in order to do this, Jesus was seeking out those whose hearts were really open to him so that they could partner with him in the work. It's not that he came to kind of set the ball rolling and we kind of stand back and, and cheer it on. He wants us to get stuck in and get involved with him in that. And, and what this really looked like was it came in the form of an invitation. Okay, you're never really forced into it. Jesus just invites us into this process of following him and embodying his teaching and his ways. You see, Jesus in all of his humanity teaches us how the original design for life is meant to play out. And he extends that offer to those of us who are open and who are willing to be discipled in his ways and who are spiritually receptive enough to recognize the moves of the Holy Spirit. And we all have that within us, you know. Don't ever think that that's just kind of for the elite. That's for everyone. So we're all to be in this kind of ongoing process of transformation along the way. So that's kind of like September to October in about three paragraphs. I hope you're kind of with me on that, all right? But more recently, um, we have specifically been looking at Matthew 13 and all that Jesus taught us about the kingdom of God through the parables that he taught in this chapter. So a quick recap of that before I get into where we're going this morning. The first parable that we looked at in Matthew 13 was the parable of the sower and the seed. And Chris and Alan taught us so thoroughly on that. They taught us that, that uh, when our hearts are receptive to receive the kingdom, that's when the process begins. That if we really are Jesus followers, right? If we are really declaring that we follow Jesus and that we love him, and that a significant principle that plays out in our life is that we make sure that our, the soil in our hearts are ready to receive the new seed that he wants to sow. But we have a responsibility in that. We have to guard our hearts to make sure that it's only his seed that goes in. But we also have to then open our heart to make sure that we allow it to go in as well. And it's kind of that fine line between those two things. And we usually have to then also, and this is a hard one, we have to let go of what we uh, picture the kingdom to be, our own notions of the kingdom. We have to let go of that to let what he wants to say in. Then we were taught by Debbie about the parable of the wheat and the tares. And she taught us how the kingdom has come in the person of Jesus, but at the same time it hasn't come fully because there remains to this day. Um, and I suppose until Jesus comes back again, this persistent work of the enemy in our world. And Jesus uses this parable to make sure that we know that 
that heavenly perspective is fundamental in all of life. It's hard not to let your head drop sometimes, but he's saying, you know, this is what faith is, that we need to see things from his perspective. We need grace. We need a supernatural level of patience because we all continue to live in this world where these things run in parallel with us. Then um, the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the mustard seeds and the leaven. And that is where Jesus has taught us um, that we need to be a people who are patient in the world while we wait for him to come back. Alan taught us that the seeds sown or the leaven in the dough, um, they're a symbol in the kingdom that can often appear small, that the work of God can often begin in a small way, but that their size, I love this, but the size wasn't always an indication of their potential. What we require really is this gut belief or what we call it, I suppose, is faith. And that through time, it's going to grow into something that's, that's just pretty significant. And that we hang on to that truth, okay, when we feel like nothing is happening. And so then we get to our parables today. So I, as I was looking into Matthew 13 and the parables that we're going to look at today, I, I, I actually jumped back into Matthew 12 as well to look at the context of it. And, um, and I think that's really important that we know who Jesus was speaking to and what else had happened on that day so that we kind of get the full impact of what he was trying to teach. So in Matthew 12, Israel's rejection of Jesus had kind of reached a, a, a bit of a high, okay? He had, uh, in his way, he had healed a man who had a shriveled hand and he had freed another man from demonic influence. He had restored his sight and he was able to begin to speak again. And the Pharisees didn't like it because he did it on a Sabbath. The, the one who, who set up the Sabbath rule did it on a Sabbath and, and the Pharisees didn't like it, but there you go. There was actually scenes, as I looked at this, something really significant about the fact that, that Jesus healed the hand of one person and he brought freedom from the ultimate oppressor by opening the eyes and opening the mouth of another before Jesus himself began to speak in parables. And I wonder, okay, didn't read this anywhere, but I just wonder, might be wrong. But was he coming to demonstrate that to be involved in his purposes, we need to spiritually be able to do with our hands, to see the work of the Spirit, and then to declare the truth that he was about to impart in the disciples? Was that like a, a pre um, figure? That's probably not the right way. Was that, yeah, before, <laughs> he, uh, before he got on with these parables, was he kind of opening up hearts to say, actually, guys, this is what you need to be involved in this level of work. And then it says in Matthew 13, it says, on that same day, right? So it was still the Sabbath. And uh, he was teaching the crowds at the beginning of the chapter. Now, something I learned in, in my preparation for this morning was, it says that Jesus left the house and the house, some theologians think, and, and I, I kind of like it, so that's why it's in here. Some theologians think that the house was actually a symbol of Israel, okay? And when he left the house and he went to the sea, other, those same theologians think that the sea was a symbol of the, the nations bringing the message to the nations or bringing the, the message to the Gentiles. And it was kind of like... Um, something in Jesus's ministry was about to change, okay? So he went to the sea, he got into the boat, and then he taught those first four parables that we were looking at there, or we were recapping over this morning, okay? The sower and the seed, the wheat and the tares, and then the mustard seed and the leaven. And, and, uh, and the, this crowd of people who were listening to Jesus, there was a wide range of opinions about him among that crowd, okay? Some people were all in. The disciples were given their lives to this man, okay? They, they, they just 
adored him and everything that he said, they hung on his words. Some people were a bit skeptical. They didn't quite know who Jesus was, what he was getting at, but they were there, you know, just because they were interested. But there were other people in the crowd who were just anti-Jesus, okay? The Pharisees were out to get him from this point. But you see, in his teachings, Jesus was really challenging them about their perception of what they believe the Messiah is going to do. And in presenting himself, what he did was he exposed a lot of their misunderstanding. Johnny, you're ahead of me. I'm I'm so thankful for Johnny Beggs when I'm up here because this is obsolete to me. So then it says, later in the day, he's addressing only the disciples in the house, right? So he's been on the boat, given those first four parables, and then later in the day, they go back to the house, Jesus and the disciples. And you kind of can picture them lying around the table, you know, the way that, you know the way they did, we think, and um, they're reviewing the day. You know, if you've been out with your family and you come back and you say, did you see did you see what happened there? And did you see what she was wearing? And you know, all that kind of stuff. They're just reviewing the day. And, uh, and I love the hunger that, I, that you see in the disciples um, because they're asking Jesus, what, what did you mean by all of that stuff that you were teaching earlier? They probed and in the intimacy of their relationship with him, they wanted more, okay? And they knew they had an opportunity. So it's worthwhile keeping in mind that the first four parables that Jesus uh, taught in Matthew 13, and um, were given to this wide range of crowds, right? The crowd. They were given to like unbelievers, but they were given to the religious and they were given to the followers. But this, these next two parables were given specifically just to those who followed him, right? Because it touched on more costly things. And, and he gave, he gave these, this level of teaching to those who were committed to him. What he was really saying in, in these parables is that, you know, if you're serious about this, if you're serious about following me, there's so much more to it. So these parables in Matthew 13, um, 44 and 45, they, they go together in the Bible, but I'm going to separate them for the sake of what I want to bring out this morning. And the first one is the parable of the hidden treasure. And it says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and he bought that field. Now, to a lot of us, the, the very concept that you'd find treasure hidden in a field seems so bizarre, but culturally, to the disciples, this wasn't a strange thing at all. So they lived in a time with a lot of battles, and, uh, and when the enemy would have won and they come in, they would have taken anything that was of value. They plundered, okay? And they took anything that was valuable. So the safest thing to do if you had something that was valuable was to bury it because you were the only person who knew where it was going to be. Um, and and that, they didn't have banks or anything like that. Um, so that was, that was the safest thing to do with their valuable possessions, and actually, if you read on through the Bible, we can see that Jesus talks about it in the parable of the talents. And actually, in Joshua 7, there's a man named Achan. It didn't go so well for him, but he did bury some valuable things under his tent. Um, but yeah, you can read that one for yourself. So the idea of discovering treasure in a field wasn't that odd a concept. And there's a couple of different ways these parables can be interpreted. And if you stick with you this morning, I want to give you both of them because I think there's value in that. But the first kind of point that we want to land with this morning is that, right, Johnny, go for it. Jesus is the treasure, okay? Jesus is the treasure that's in the field. You see, when Jesus was teaching in the previous parables about the field, 
um, it was always a picture of the world. And if you can imagine this scene of, of a laborer in a field working hard, getting his hands dirty and making a really meager wage, but as he toils in the fields, he uncovers something that he realizes is just going to change his entire life. Something of such incomprehensible value that he is forever transformed. You see, Jesus understands the disciples' hearts are ready for the weight of this message. They are people who have already counted the cost to follow him. And Jesus is explaining that, you know, he is the ultimate treasure that we're ever going to find. We are the laborers in the field, working the land. And when we discover Jesus, our desire for him should take precedent over everything else in our lives. And so as we do life, and as we discover the value of Jesus, we enter into this process, or in, in, a, in a more simplistic way, you know, we just enter into a friendship, into a relationship that reveals to us the joy of wanting more of Jesus. And, and I love the way he describes the laborer's response when he's found the treasure. It says he was overwhelmed with joy. It said, in his joy, the man went and sold all that he had to buy the field. You see, the laborer didn't consider it an inconvenience, and he didn't consider it a sacrifice to sell all that he had. Like, genuinely think about that, right? All that he had, he didn't, he didn't feel it was a sacrifice because he considered it a pure joy. You see, he understood what he had found in the treasure that would be so much better than everything that he had to give up. Jesus was the top trump card. Our boys love top trumps. That's their the fights over top trump cards in ours. Jesus was the top trump card. And I remember when I first fell in love with Jesus, I was like 16, 17. Do you know, he, genuinely, he was everything to me, everything. <laughs> and I knew that what I had found in him was what I was meant to live for. And it was genuinely my deepest joy to know Jesus, to discover more about his heart. Nothing else at that point in my life came close to it. But I do have to tell you that, that it cost. It cost at that point to follow Jesus. But the joy that I got in him made everything else worth it. And as I look back and reflect back on that, uh, what I left behind and what I sacrificed did not compare to what I have in Jesus. And so it tells us in verse 44, it says, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and he bought the field. So this root word, for joy here, um, and particularly in the New Testament, is, is a word chara. And what it really means is it's a well, joy, <laughs> or it's a delight, or a, or a deep gladness. You see, joy in the New Testament is, is virtually always used to signify a feeling of happiness that is based on spiritual realities. And it's independent of everything that happens around you, okay? It's like a whole other level of joy. And it's deeply, deeply spiritual. You see, when we find Jesus... And all that he represents and all that his kingdom represents, the Holy Spirit that is within us becomes, becomes our deep gladness. It becomes our delight. He is our source of joy. And you know what? It's not just as hard to count the cost for Jesus when your relationship with Jesus is like that. He is the, the ultimate treasure. But you know what? Sometimes distractions and preoccupations prevent us from seeing Jesus clearly. But when we reprioritize and we seek him, we usually find him, him near. Sometimes I find in my own life, I'm going to be honest, it's not Jesus who um, is absent. Sometimes it's just my own heart. You know, does that make sense? Sometimes uh, I, can't, I can't feel it, God, where are you? But I find that usually I just need to do a wee bit of repositioning in there. And I find that actually he was just always so close, you know. 
There's no joy that compares to the magnitude of knowing God and being welcomed into his kingdom. And so the man paid everything that he had to purchase the field, but the treasure came with it free. And when we seek Jesus, he asks us to give him everything. And when we choose Jesus, we, we actually choose his will over our own. We don't just get salvation, but we also freely, we get his grace. We get his love. We get his forgiveness, even though counting the cost may seem high to us. But our search for God or, or the treasure in the field, as Jesus put it, it inadvertently is his search, is a search for the kingdom. But <clears throat> there's a cost. And uh, in our culture today, it's not very good at promoting self-denial. But what Jesus tells us is that to follow him, we need to make our relationship with him our main priority in life. What we desire and what we believe to be important has to be seen through the lens of our life lived with Jesus. And personally, um, I find it really hard to endorse a message that's all about us just being blessed and being blessed and being blessed. And, and of course, he's a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. But Jesus also tells us that we have to, to count the cost. And those things, I think, need to be held in a bit of attention together. Patrick Morley puts it like this. He says, the Western gospel has evolved into a gospel of addition without subtraction. It's a belief that we can add Christ to our lives, but not subtract sin. It's a change in belief without a change in behavior. That's a bit of a sting, that one, isn't it? It's a spiritual experience without any cultural impact. It's revival without reformation or repentance. And I suppose the, the kind of main challenge that we're, we're kind of going to circle around a lot this morning is um, what in our lives, and, and this is for you personally to um, examine, I, I can't tell you what that might be because for me it's probably very different for what it is, from what it is for you, but what do we need to set down? What do we need to, to let go of? What, what sin is continuing to nip at our heels that gets in the way? And prevents us from reprioritizing. Okay, how can we make sure that we find the treasure that is Jesus? What is God joyfully asking you to let go of to make more room for Jesus today? And like I say, that's deeply personal. I can't answer that for you. But I do believe that the Spirit is working. And I do believe that there's things. Because for me, when I was preparing, it was like, oh, okay. You know, and, and I do believe that the Spirit wants to really move on that this morning. The second point that, that I, I kind of uh, want to land with this morning is that when we get to the next parable, the kingdom is the pearl. So Jesus is the prize. Okay, Jesus is the treasure. And the kingdom then is the pearl. And in verses 45 and 46 of Matthew 13, it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. And again, in the culture of the time, it's, it's, it's useful to know that merchants were very common in Palestine, okay? But because uh, Palestine was kind of like this crossroads in the Roman Empire, they used it to kind of navigate their way right around the rest of it. But the particular merchant that Jesus is talking about was actually a very uncommon kind of merchant because he was like a specialist, right? He filled this narrow niche in the market looking for fine pearls, and, and it's thought that if this merchant could devote all of his time just to looking for pearls, he must have been pretty rich or, and, and well-placed. He must have had influence. Some people even suggest that someone like this might have worked for royalty. Um, 
but, but we know that he's seeking. Jesus tells us that he's seeking. He's been traveling around. He's looking through many markets. He knows the value of everything that he's seen so far. But you know what? He's not satisfied. He wants more. He's hungry and he's desperate for the one thing he knows is going to bring him great joy and true satisfaction. When he finds the pearl of great price, he realized that that's what he needs in his life. That's just how valuable it is. It changed his entire life's priorities and goals. He quickly gave all that he had in exchange for it. And Jesus, when he was speaking to the disciples here, I believe that, that he wants them to understand just how valuable the kingdom was. And so the focus, I suppose, in this parable isn't so much on the merchant, but it's rather he's used to kind of contrast, if you know what I mean, to kind of to show how much more valuable the kingdom is in comparison to everything that the, that the, the merchant was willing to leave behind. Does that make sense? And everything that he was willing to let go of, the kingdom was more, it was worth more than that. And again, this idea of the merchant looking or seeking um, for the pearl is really interesting because a lot of the root language around that meant that it was like a deep desire or a striving or a soul searching. And when this word was used, it was usually used biblically in the context of worshiping God. And so the whole idea of seeking or looking for the pearl, it kind of plays to that idea that Jesus is encouraging us to go up a gear. He's encouraging us to increase our level of pursuit of his ways to help establish his kingdom. John Piper says this. He says, the, uh, no, that's not John Piper. John Piper says this. He says, the kingdom of God is so valuable that losing everything on earth but getting the kingdom is a happy trade-off. I, I, I like that quote, but that quote challenges me so much. Um, so here, yeah, this, this next one, this is just a wee fun fact for you, right? This is the Pearl of Porto, okay? It is the largest known pearl. Can you see it? Can you see it? It's the largest known pearl in the world, right? And <laughs> I love this. It was found in 1996 by this wee Filipino fisherman, and he hid it under his bed for 10 years, right? He hid it under his bed, right? <laughs> I just think, fair play, good, good on him. He kept it concealed in this bag, right, because he thought that it brought him good luck. The thing, it's 67 centimeters long, and it's, it weighs 34 kilograms. Like, I must have been some bed to hide it under, but... Um, but pearls in the New Testament, right, they were usually found by slaves, by fishermen, by everyday ordinary people. You don't need to be a specialist at this. And just like the book of Acts tells us, the disciples were everyday ordinary people who had been with Jesus. And that is what distinguished them from, from other people. And that's the same for us. We are invited into this journey to find the pearl, to pursue Jesus's ways and to unearth the kingdom of God. Do you know, do you not just see this more than ever at the moment? Like, so many people are just desperately seeking for something, but they just don't know what it is they're looking for. And, and, and maybe, and I just believe it's just, it's just such a grievance, you know, to the heart of the Father, but maybe they've been turned off Jesus because religion has kind of, over the years, made him seem boring and made him seem irrelevant. But when you, when you read the Bible, okay, and when you find Jesus in those words, like that is the total opposite. He was a revolutionary, okay? He came to shift everything. And, uh, and what's interesting about these two parables is that the worker in the fields, he isn't actually seeking anything. He's just getting on with his, with his work, 
okay? But he unintentionally finds the treasure. But then in the next one, the merchant is intentional. He has been specifically looking for this pearl of great price. And I think it's this beautiful picture of finding Jesus and then knowing that we need to keep pursuing him throughout the rest of our time here. But he taught us that both of those things come with a certain level of cost. The pursuit of God at this level, I can't say this any other way, it's going to disrupt your life, okay? But it's the only way to live. Paul lived out this reality. He embodied what Jesus taught about gaining the kingdom because he says in Philippians 3 verses 7 and 8, he says, he counts it all as loss. He counts it all as loss. Everything that Paul gave up, his status, the influence of his family, his, his influence in terms of what he was able to do in, in terms of his career, he gave that all up as loss in order that he could gain Christ. He got the kingdom. He got Jesus because he wanted it more than anything else. He dug in through the dirt of the Roman Empire, of the politics, of the legalism at the time, and everything that he came up against. And he got his hands dirty. He put in the graft. He counted the cost. But we know that he got the kingdom. And why did he do this? Well, I, I think it's because he was convinced of what Jesus taught in Luke 12. Jesus said, you know, he said, it's the Father's good pleasure. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And you know, the similarities in these two short parables, they make it clear that they teach the same lesson. Jesus and the kingdom of heaven are of incomparable value. When we have genuinely discovered Jesus, we realize that in him we find all that we're seeking, okay? John Maxwell says this. He says, you have to give up to go up. Not to go up in terms of like status or anything like that, but to go up a level in terms of Jesus, there's some things we have to give up. And so one way of looking at these parables is that we're in pursuit of Jesus, but the other interpretation that I wanted to, to um, bring to your attention this morning and, and close with today is that um, I kind of wonder, did Jesus do this deliberately? You know, do you remember he gives us the authority to interpret and interpret and interpret a scripture to get new meaning, right? Jesus is the one seeking, when we read these parables, we can consider it this way. Could the worker in the fields be Jesus who gave everything through his death on the cross to buy the fields and to get the treasure? So what's the treasure? I just felt as I was preparing this this morning that there's some people who needed to hear that, you know what, you're the treasure. You, your heart is the treasure. You just have to look through the Old Testament to know that God refers to Israel like that as his treasure possessions. And I don't have time because I see where we are this morning to give you the, I was going to give you the references. Come to me afterwards if you want them. But, uh, but it's, it, it, it tells us throughout the Bible that we are the, we are the one that, that God is pursuing. And in terms of the, the pearl of great price, again, the merchant could be viewed as Jesus as he came not of the one of that land where he found himself. He gave everything that he had away to pay the price for the pearl because Jesus departed from heaven, didn't he? And he arrived on earth to complete his mission. And the pearl, this beautiful item that is formed in an unseen process out of pain and out of injury could in fact be the church, could be his bride. You see, when Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven, he's really saying it's his loving rule and reign on earth through his people. And I just felt like somebody needed to hear this today. Jesus doesn't just stumble across you, right? He seeks you out. He desires you. He pursues you. His is this wholehearted, loving response 
to the Father's purposes for the kingdom of heaven to break in. And he wants you to be involved in that. He just wants our hearts to reflect his level of commitment. His love makes something beautiful out of something broken. When we engage with and enter into this ongoing, lifelong journey of discipleship. So let's bring both of these interpretations together. We are moved to pursue Jesus more because we live in this reality that he is also in pursuit of us. And this mutual pursuit is so much more fulfilling and usually involves cost. But you know what? It's not the way of relationship, <laughs> isn't it? I know that... Um, Sorry, Stephen, he, he didn't know I was going to do this. But when we, <laughs> when we started, like many, many years ago, when we started seeing each other, but you know, when you knew that the other person just wanted to be around you, it made you want to be around them more as well, do you know? And I just think that's just such a beautiful picture of, of how Jesus feels about us. And Song of Solomon, um, chapter 8, I'm going to jump on a couple of slides here. Um, it just puts it beautifully. It says, if a man should give all the substance of his possessions for love, he will count it as nothing. Rivers of pain and persecution will never extinguish this flame. Endless floods will be unable to quench this raging fire that burns within you. Everything will be consumed. But look at this bit. It will stop at nothing as you yield everything to this furious fire until it won't even seem to you like a sacrifice anymore. And so I believe this morning that out of this level of intimacy that Jesus is trying to encourage us, and I'll actually put it into the email the other day, and that really encouraged me because I had it in my notes. It's, I believe that there's going to be an overshadowing, okay? I believe that there's going to be an overshadowing just like the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. And that kingdom conceptions, kingdom seeds that we've been speaking about for the past few weeks are going to begin to form, that are going to eventually be birthed, that contain the DNA of the kingdom to be planted in our towns, to be planted in our cities, and in our nation. But it's only going to happen if we're willing to count the cost. And in many ways, as I ponder these passages in preparation for this morning, I just wonder, are these parables less about what the kingdom of God is like, but rather are they more just about what the kingdom of God is worth? Okay, and what is all of this worth to us? Let just, just one more quote here, okay? And Michael Green says this about chapter 13 of Matthew. He says, this chapter echoes the great themes of who Jesus is, what he can do, and the need to respond to him. As people hear them, they're made to see where they stand in relation to the kingdom that he brings in. So where do we stand this morning in relation to the kingdom? It's my hope, as I come to a close, that we take, what we take away from this morning is that we are made to pursue Jesus, yes, but yet we're also made for his pursuit of us. And I find it easier to go after God's heart when I know that he's going after mine too. But as, as I prepared for this morning, and particularly as I was praying yesterday, I kind of even just got a sense that some of you might be thinking this, I want to get there, but I don't even know how to get there. I don't even know how to get to that place of pursuing God's heart because there's so much going on in my life. And I'd love to encourage you this morning. Would you come and have a chat with us? We'd love to pray with you, okay? Because we believe that this is God's design for your life. And we believe that there's something about the freedom that you get in knowing that he is in pursuit of your heart and living in that reality, okay? So can I pray for you this morning? <clears throat> Do you know, God, we know that... Um, we know that when we live in that reality that you are chasing us down, that that, that that level of relationship, God, we know that it's easier 
to say yes to you and to open up our hearts to you. And so this morning, Father, I pray that the weariness that, has, that can get on us, that the distraction that can get on us, that the secret stuff of our hearts that can be in us, God, I just pray that there would be a release this morning. I pray just like Jesus brought freedom for that man in Matthew 12, that you would bring freedom this morning, that, that, that uh, chains and things that hold us back could drop off, God, that, so that we could pursue you with this level of freedom that we've been speaking about today, God. Help us to see that it is a joy to count the cost for you, that you are that what we must ultimately pursue, God, and that your kingdom is what what you've made us all for. In your name, amen. Great stuff, wonderful stuff, Bruno. Thank you for that. So yeah, that's us, um, that's us finished. Just want to encourage you, to, um, just to the way the Lord's led us this morning, I do want to encourage you that over the next few weeks, don't, don't, don't allow your love for Jesus to be crowded out. Yeah, just sit with him, allow him to love you. Think about how he is still the treasure in the field. Think about how worth he is giving up everything for, for that joy, for that joy. Don't, don't let your joy, don't let your love be crowded out. You know, hang on to that joy. Revel in that joy. Sit and center yourself in it. And, uh, and let's have a wonderful few weeks as we build up to Christmas, all right? We're praying for you uh, throughout the week. And um, please don't be in a rush. As Bruno said, if you'd like us to pray for you, we'd love to do that. We're here to do that. Um, uh, if you want to grab your kids, if, you're, if you've got um, kids in kids' environments, please do that. And uh, we'll get things turned around for our next service at 11 o'clock. Bless you all. Have a great week. <laughs>